Right on, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Did you read ahead? Did you? All right. I was already getting threats before the, before the sermon there. Just like 10 minutes ago, somebody said, we'll see if we come back next week. They were teasing me. All right. Right on. So we're going to continue just into the second chapter of this letter. And, uh, you know, Paul here in 1 Timothy, we often talk about it being much about church structure and government and the setup of how churches should work and, and this and that. But, you know, as I've been heading into 1 Timothy, what struck me and what I think is really at the heart of the letter is that Paul is instructing Timothy about how the gospel leads to practical, uh, visible change in the lives of those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that those who follow Jesus and adhere to the gospel, the result is that there should be godliness in their, in their lives. And so in the midst of church and all this talk, that's at the heart here. The way the gospel will change your life. And so he says this. First of all, actually, I'm going to back up one verse to, uh, actually two verses. Now let's go to verse 18 of chapter one. Let's do that this morning, just to get a little bit of context. Okay. So starting with verse 18 of chapter one, he says this, this charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some men, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Herminius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I, uh, I titled this message this morning, gospel shaped living. And as Paul begins to talk about some of the ways that the gospel shapes our lives, the first thing he's going to talk about here is the priority and the place of, of prayer in the lives of those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, if you just consider Paul, uh, consider his life prior to the life-changing experience of meeting Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul defined himself as a blasphemer. He defined himself as a, a persecutor of, of those who followed Jesus Christ. He defined himself as an insolent opponent of the gospel of the Lord. And at the close of chapter 1 here, we just see Paul talks about two other men who are also guilty of what he was once guilty of. Blasphemy. Uh, they, they failed to hold on to the faith. They failed to wage good warfare and to have a clear conscience. And, and whatever they may have done and whatever it may have looked like, Paul says something pretty harsh as, as that first chapter closes. He says, I handed them over to Satan. Uh, that they may, they may learn not to blaspheme. It's a, it's a corrective handing over that, that Paul has given uh, to these men. Now, blasphemy, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to just kind of consider what blasphemy is. And blasphemy is to speak irreverently of God or th of things that are sacred to God. Of course, Jesus spoke of one sin that we refer to as, as the unforgivable sin. 
a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. See, the work of the Holy Spirit is this. The, the Holy Spirit is in the world and he convicts the world in regards to sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. He is actively at work, the spirit of God upon the face of the earth to lead people and to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he convicts the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, the work and the goal of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus Christ. And so when someone rejects Jesus, when he rejects the work of the spirit, he is treating irreverently the work of the spirit and the Jesus himself said that's unforgivable because the person who rejects the work of the spirit is ultimately rejecting God's source of salvation. And that is Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? What blasphemy of the Holy spirit is. And so blasphemy is to speak irreverently about God or about sacred things. So as followers of Christ, as the gospel changed our lives as it, as it begins to shape us and morph us and we undergo this transformation of just knowing Jesus, what must happen for us is that we begin to adopt a Christ-centered worldview. The gospel, as I've said, leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. The, the gospel should lead us to lives of godliness. And so here in the midst where Timothy's working in Ephesus, there were men guilty of blasphemy. Now it doesn't say blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But they were guilty of doing this. They spoke irreverently of God. And they spoke irreverently of things that were sacred to the heart of God. The things that God had established and put in order. They did not value and they did not believe in. Although they confessed the name of Jesus. And so, you know, when we talk about things that are sacred to God, it, sacred just means this, things that are connected to God. Things that, that are at his heart. Things that he is concerned about and values. And so I guess in my mind, the question is this, as I work through this text, is it possible for a Christian to pack attitudes of blasphemy towards the things of God? And I think the answer is yes. And Paul had something specific in mind as we jump into this next part of the text here. And it was this, the attitude of those who follow Jesus Christ towards those who do not know Jesus. The attitude of the believing towards the lost. The attitude of those who have been found towards those who don't know Jesus. I mean, jump ahead for a moment with me to, we'll circle back around here in a second and read verse three and four with me. And it says this, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, those verses tell us uh, God's attitude towards the lost. They tell us God's uh, desire for the lost, his heart for the lost and it, Paul says this, God's desire is this, that all people would be saved. That all people would come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, I don't know. Is it limited atonement or unlimited atonement? Are you Arminianist or are you Calvinist? 
You know, well, is there free will or is there sovereignty of man? And where are all these things? Look, all those arguments and those doctrinal talks and spinning this and that. They have to do with the plight of the unsaved. And if we're not careful, we will treat with blasphemy things that are precious to the heart of God. Do you know what is sacred to the heart of God? Do you know what is at the heartbeat of God Almighty? People. People. And not just those who found the Lord Jesus Christ and have placed their faith in him. Sacred to the heart of God is those who are dead in sin. Lost. And he desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus said it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting lives. And you know, sometimes Christians, and I think it was probably going on where Timothy was at work, can pack this attitude where they begin to just look down on those who are not saved, on those who are not counted among the family of God. And they begin to just toss around snarky remarks about the eternal destiny of those who do not know Jesus. And yes, hell is a reality. It is a reality that the Bible teaches. But I would say this. We should be extremely cautious about the attitude that we pack when we talk about such things. It must be done in love. We must not forget that it's only by grace that, that we ourselves have been saved. See, we must treat sacred the things that God values. And what does God value? God values people that are made in his image, saved or unsaved. And so what you and I need is the proper biblical perspective. We need a biblical worldview. We need to have gospel thinking. We need the mind of Christ towards people because they're close to the heartbeat of the almighty. So here's Paul's instruction. Verse one again. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. I get it now. I should pray. First of all, that's, that's, that's in reference to the matters of importance. He says, before everything else, here's how you deal with people. You pray for them. You pray for them. You pray for their salvation. You pray for their well-being. You pray for the saved. You pray for the unsaved. You pray for your neighbor. You pray for your coworker. You pray for your family. You pray for your children. You pray for your boss. You just pray for people. Always, first of all, that's what you do. You pray. You pray for your mother-in-law. Bible does say you pray for your enemies. Pray for your mother-in-law. <laughs> Look, there's no one beyond the reach of prayer. No one. And so when Paul lists, you know, some of the different types of prayer, he says supplication and intercession and prayer and, and, and thanksgiving. He's saying, do this, man, on behalf of other people, use every form possible of communication with God. Every form possible. You know, you, you could ask God to supply for the needs of your friend. You, you know, we can intercede on behalf of someone else. You can pray prayers of thanksgiving for your mother-in-law and for, no, just kidding. Of course you can. 
for whoever you thank God for them. The idea is this. All men need prayer. All men need prayer. Actually, you know, all the ladies should actually say amen when I say all men need prayer. All men need prayer. <laughs> Everyone needs prayer. Every, amen. You, you, you know, you've never met someone that you should not pray for. And so Paul says this first of important. If you're going to pack an attitude about people, let it be this. Pray for them. Pray for them. He says in verse two, for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, before Jesus came on the scene, the people of Israel had come under the control of the Roman empire. And, you know, throughout their history, uh, the people of Israel always seemed to have some nation, some group of people oppressing them and oppressing their freedom. Of course, there's Egypt, the Philistines, the Midianites, you know, the Syrians, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about who would oppress the people of God. And for all those reasons, because of being constantly under the hand of oppression, they as a people really truly held to the hope of the coming of the Messiah. Because for them, the coming of the Messiah held the dream of freedom from the yoke of oppression, from the yoke of those who would suppress them. And at the time that this letter was written, that Paul wrote to Timothy, it's now 25 to 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the dream of, of being free from the yoke of Rome had risen again in the, in the hearts of the Jewish people. I mean, you know, Roman armies were gathering. There was talk about them taking Jerusalem again. There's just all this crazy things going on. And the, the dream of being freed from that yoke of oppression had so seized the hearts of the Jewish people again that, that they had become guilty of blaspheming God in another area. That they spoke evil of the dignities and the authorities and the governments that God had established. Now, you know, it may be hard to fathom this, but God in his sovereignty established government. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, premiers, Caesars, Kaisers, Tsars, emperors, They're established, they're raised up, and they're taken down by the authority and the plan of Almighty God. A government is sacred to the heart of God. Because Jesus is a king. He himself has a government. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is a kingdom, and the scripture says the government sits on his shoulders. His, his rule has no end. He's, he is the prince of peace. Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, like I said, it might be hard to imagine this, but God is actually into government and he's into authority. And Romans chapter 13 actually tells us that there is no authority that exists 
except from God. And that those that do exist have been instituted by him. Uh, Government and authorities are God's servants to do us good. Romans 13 says. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to admit this, but I guess that you, you could say that government and authority are sacred to the heart of God. What that means is this. Again, if our lives is going to be shaped, are going to be shaped by the gospel, we need proper perspective, a biblical worldview, a gospel thinking mind towards authority and towards the governments that God has established. They're close to the heartbeat of God. And Paul's instruction again is that we should do what? We pray. We pray for kings and for all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life and dignified in every way. See, during the days of the Roman Empire, Christians were often, in fact, all the time accused of undermining the state. You know why? Because they wouldn't bow their knee and say, Caesar is Lord. They said, no, sorry. We serve another Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they claimed, and rightly so, to serve the Lord rather than Caesar. Caesar. But they would point back and they'd say, but we are good citizens of the state because we pray for Caesar and we pray for the government. See, prayer for for all, all men, but Paul connects that thought that we should pray for those that are in authority so that we may have lives of peace as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, the early church leader Tertullian explained this and he said this, He said, we pray for all the emperors that God may grant them long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vigorous troops, a secure Senate, an obedient people, that the whole world may be at peace and that God may grant both Caesar and to every man the accomplishment of their just desires. See, that's gospel shaped thinking in regards to government. I think it's actually the, the pastime of the ungodly to berate government. The Christians should pray. Pray that God would bless the government and that we would be able to lead quiet lives. Uh, quiet lives, that just speaks of a, of a life that's not troubled on the outside. A peaceful life speaks of a life that's not troubled on the inside. It says on the inside and the outside that we'd just be able to live for Jesus. So pray for those that are in authority. See, if Jesus is your king, then you have been set free from the yoke of slavery. You have been set free from the bonds of sin and death. And the government, it's just nothing but a servant to the plans of almighty God. Don't always understand it. Can't always figure it out. But God's at work. He'll tear one leader down and he'll raise up another one. And so we're to pray. To pray for all men. Verse 3. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look, Jesus is our Savior. And that means this. We don't, you know, we do not count on human government to save us. And so we join in the mission of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords by praying for the salvation of all men. 
And the fact that God desires that all men be saved just simply implies the possibility of accepting, all men accepting the gift of God's grace or, or rejecting that gift. And so we're to pray. Just pray for people, everyone. And then Paul tells us how we must be saved. Verse five, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Look, there is no valid way of coming to God except through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, it's the attitude and the the heart of our culture to believe that there are many ways to God. That, you know, I in one conversation with someone, I just remember, I'll never forget, all rivers flow to the sea. You know, if you follow your heart with good intentions, you'll find your way to God. But the Bible, the scripture, the word of God completely rejects that thinking. You know, the Pharisee and the tax collector each came to God sincerely in Luke chapter 18. But one was accepted by God and one was rejected. The rich young ruler in Luke 18 also came to Jesus sincerely, but he was rejected because he didn't give up everything to follow Jesus. In Leviticus chapter 10, it tells the story of Levi's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and God's judgment upon their life because they thought they could just approach God any way that they, they pleased and they, they offered to God unauthorized fire. God's judgment was upon them, making it clear, we, we can't come to God any way that we please. And sincerity, like the Pharisee, or sincerity like the rich man, or even Nadab and Abihu, sincerity is not the safeguard. Look, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says this, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it is the way of death. And the Bible says very clearly that the way to the father is through Jesus Christ. The man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. He he wrapped his deity in human flesh. Clothed in human flesh and he gave himself. Paul says, "What what a beautiful thing to think that God gave himself to us, for us. You can give time, but not give yourself. You could give your money and not give yourself. You, you, you could give your opinion and not give yourself. You, you could even give your life and yet not give yourself. Jesus, he gave himself. He gave himself as a ransom, as the payment for our sins. He, he put himself in our place. He received the punishment and the wrath of God against sin in his body on that tree. He paid the price. A ransom for all. He died and he was buried and he was raised to life. And he's ascended into heaven where he sits 
on the throne of Almighty God. A ransom for all. And the work of the cross is sufficient for all. No one is turned away that comes to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In verse 7, Paul says, For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Look, Paul just says, look, this is my deal, man. Whoops. This is my deal. The message of Jesus. That's what I preach. That's what I'm about. And now he gives some instructions further for men and for women. It should be fun. Verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place men should pray. Okay, that makes sense. He's, he's just going down a logical step here. Lifting holy hands without anger or without quarreling. Now the first thing I think of when uh, I come to this text this, and want to break it down, this particular verse, is to go through it backwards. You know, how does the man without the gospel deal with anger? Well, two seconds in, you have a line brawl. Watch that Canucks game last night. That was awesome, man. That was awesome. Okay. You know, to quote Don Cherry from Rock'em Sock'em 1, as he commented on the bruised knuckles of Chris Nyland, he said, check out them knuckles, folks. You don't get those from playing the piano. Okay. You know, often that is the result of human male a- anger. What do you do? You go to fisticuffs. You know, if we were to pull the room here, Ladies, you might not believe this, but I believe this because I know what you're sitting beside. I bet there isn't a man in this room who hasn't punched a hole through a door, punched a hole through a wall, or punched someone else out, resorted to fisticuffs in their human, male, anger, or in a quarrel. I won't ask for a show of hands, but do we want it? No, just kidding. Now, on the other side of the fence, there probably isn't a woman here who's ever resorted to punching a hole through the wall or through a door or through whatever. Look, as the gospel shapes your life, there is to be another outlet for your anger, in a sense, Paul is saying here. Okay? We're to have clean hands spiritually. That speaks of being blameless. You know, it was actually the Jewish practice that before prayer, You wash your hands because it was a picture of what was to happen with the heart before you went to prayer. Clean hands speaks of a holy life, of of blameless living before God. It speaks of the attitude of the heart. You know, scripture says that, that if we have sin in our lives, we shouldn't expect God to answer our prayers. And so, you know, our attitude as dudes with our anger is to take it to the Lord in prayer. Learn to do battle in another way instead of with your fists on your knees. On your knees for your wife and for your marriage and for your family and for your kids and for all the authorities and the saved and the unsaved. And the idea here is that prayer is not something that is to be angry. And rather we we bring that anger to the Lord in prayer and we, we leave it there. But, but Paul says this, actually, pray without anger. Pray without quarreling in your life. You know, the idea being that, that we're to be on good terms with others, men. That men, we're to be peacemakers rather than troublemakers. You know, if we're constantly living in contention and quarreling, 
and anger, having trouble with other believers, having trouble in our home. Do we, do we, should we expect God to answer our prayer? And so this, this is the picture. God says, have clean hands, come into my presence and pray, man. It has that idea that we're having clean hands is just to be in right relationship with God, holy hands and right relationship with others without anger, without quarreling. Is that cool dudes? Then Paul jumps into another conversation about women. I'll just pause for a moment. Okay, we're good to go. Verse 9. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, so he says in the same way, ladies, I got some instruction from you. Dudes, deal with your anchor. But women, you should emphasize the spiritual preparation of your lives and, and, and the beauty of that spiritual preparation over the physical preparation and beauty. Paul, you know, I think of it this way. See, see when a man wants something, he drops his gloves and he takes it. By force and by power. Paul says rather, do your battling men on your knees. You know, when a woman wants something, she could just resort to her physical beauty. You think, oh yeah, look at, I tell my wife all the time, you don't realize how powerful you are. (laughs) You don't realize the power that you hold over me. And, And Paul says this, women, Learn to adorn yourself with something respectable before God. With respectable apparel. With, with modesty. With, with self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or, or pearls or costly attire. He says, you know, this is how the Christian woman should dress. Especially in public. With modesty. I, I just think of Hollywood as I think of that, you know. We're in Hollywood where it's all about artificial glamour, but the gospel is different. The gospel shaped life is not about artificial glamour. The, the gospel shaped woman is about the true beauty of a godly life. He says, your life should have self-control. It should have this inner radar that tells you what is good and right. Ladies, it, your life should be modest, meaning that it, that it should be decent and orderly. And your life, as you dress the way that you adorn yourself physically with clothes and makeup and jewelry, should be done in good taste with God in mind. I always think of my grandma. You know, my family comes out of the, the Pentecostal holiness movement where there was lots of legalisms. And it was like she was pushing the limit when she put on a wedding ring when she got married. Uh, or I remember family stories about the scandal of when a woman with lipstick was brought home. <laughs> Look, that's not the craziness here that we're, we're talking about. Ephesus was a wealthy commercial city. The, the women there uh, were competing against each other for attention and popularity. In, in that day, you know, expensive hairdos and costly jewelry uh, were accepted as a way to navigate through society and to get to the top. And Paul says this, the the Christian woman shouldn't focus on the outside. 
but rather on the inner person, the true beauty that only Christ can give. Now, he didn't, doesn't forbid nice clothes. Doesn't, you know, he, what he's urging here is balance, right? I, I always think of that way. The, the Christian life should, should have balance. The emphasis on modesty and holy character. And see, the most important adornment that a woman can put on, Paul says, is this, good works. A, a woman dressed in modesty and respectable apparel and adorned, a life adorned with good works is a woman who's perfectly dressed. Nothing wrong with jewelry, but good works is more valuable than diamonds and gold. Verse 11, he says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. All right. Our favorite word in the Bible, right? For the ladies, submissiveness for all of us. And so I want to talk a little bit about what submissiveness is and what it is not. Because we have the wrong idea of what it is. First of all, submission is not subjection. Submission is recognizing God's order in the home, recognizing God's order in the church and joyfully and fully obeying it. You know, when a Christian wife uh, joyfully submits to the Lord and to her husband, it should bring out, of the, bring out the best in her. But for that to happen, dudes, the scripture says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 33 in there, that a man must love his wife as Christ loves the church. You know that you love your wife and you use God's order uh, not to be as a tool to build your power with. It's not a, it's a, not a tool for you to fight, use as a weapon to fight. You know, if you're saying, woman, submit. I'm telling you, that's not going to go very good for you, okay? You, you, you don't see Jesus using that. You can laugh. That's right. Look at submission is key to spiritual growth and in ministry. Husbands should be submitted to the Lord. Christians, Ephesians 5.21, should, should, should submit to one another. Wives should be submitted to the Lord and they should be submitted to their husband. And submission literally means this. It means just to rank under. See, this is not about inherent value. It's about authority and rank and structure that God has established. You know, anyone who served in the armed forces knows that that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value, not with ability. A, a colonel has a higher rank than a private, but that does not necessarily mean that the colonel is a better man than the private. It only means that the colonel has a higher rank and therefore he has more authority. Now, when Paul says a, a woman should learn quietly, that means this. It means peaceably, okay? Let's explain that. It means without contention. That doesn't mean total silence. It means peaceably without contention. Submission is the principle here that Paul is, is talking about. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So submission is the principle. Uh, learning quietly, peaceably, without contention is the application of that principle. Now he's going to take it to the next level. Ready? Here we go. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now to me, that seems clear. 
Next verse. No, just kidding. Just kidding. What Paul's saying here is this. Women are not to have a role of teaching authority in a church over men. Uh, to be under authority is the principle. Not teaching is the application. Okay? So, so Paul is saying the church should not recognize women as those having authority in the church regarding matters of doctrine and scriptural interpretation and teaching. We're going to talk about this a little bit more here in a minute. You know, that doesn't mean that all speaking and teaching by a, a woman is necessarily a violation of God's order or a violation of God's command or a violation of the authority in the church. It, it means this, that whatever speaking or teaching that is done by a woman must be done in proper submission uh, to the men God has established and appointed to lead the church. You know, in, in 2014, January 2014, where we are, Man, the calendar's going quicker and quicker. Must be my age. In our culture, what we're saying here is very anti-culture, isn't it? It it is anti-culture. It's a hard pill to swallow with the worldview that we are constantly berated and and pressed with upon our lives. Uh, Our culture rejects the suggestion that there's any difference between the role of men and women. Whether that's the home or the workplace or the church, but the text here and the Holy Spirit by which this was inspired says differently. It says that there is a difference in roles. And so let me remind you, this is, this is not a discussion about equality. This is not a discussion about inherent value. When it comes to salvation and Inherent value and equality, absolutely, man. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no male or female, no no slave, no free, no Jew, no Gentile. There is equality. But this is about God's design for the role of men and women in the church. And the culture might say otherwise, but there is a difference. You know, there's so much of a battle for equality in, in, our, in our culture. So much, I, I think it's this. It's a battle for authority. You know, consider the, the changes that have happened probably in the world in the last 50 years. Out, outdating me, right? But you know, citizens do not have the same respect that they once held, I think, for government authority. You know, students, we got those who work in the school district, teaching and TAs and stuff. Uh, Students do not have the same respect for teachers' authority that they once held. Women do not have the same respect for men's authority that they once held. Children, as we're seeing increasingly in our culture with all sorts of tags that we're diagnosing our kids with, do not have the same respect for parental authority in our culture. Employees do not have the same respect for their employer's authority. People don't have respect for police authority. You know, Christians no longer have a respect for church authority. 
And some of those changes, you know, as I just lumped that in once up, some of them are good. I mean, some of them are, we, we needed a bit more balance than maybe was in the past. But others, the pendulum's gone too far and the line's been too much blurred. Look, submission and authority are even seen in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I don't do anything unless my Father tells me to do it. You know, the very nature of God tells us that there is submission and there is authorities that God has established. The Son, Jesus, submits to the Father and yet he's no less God, the scripture tells us. The very nature of God tells us that authority and submission are part of his design. And so when Paul says, I I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man, Paul's focus to me is on the corporate worship setting in the church. Now again, the cultures rejected the idea that there could be a difference between the role of men and women. Now the Bible never teaches that women are to submit to all men. They're not. It's not general submission of all women to all men. The Bible only speaks about marriage where the husband is the head and the church where the men are to lead. It's not the command of the Bible that, that men have exclusive lead in the workplace or in government or in education or whatever. There's two places that God instructs this, the home and the church. And Paul is not saying that every woman is under the authority of every man in the church. Just the ruling authorities of the church are to be men. So give us some reasons why, Paul. Well, he does. Let's check it out. Verse 13. He says this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Two reasons that Paul gives for this instruction and this setup in the church. He says this, first of all, Adam was formed first. The, the first reason for male authority in the church is the order of creation. Adam was created first and he was given the original authority over the earth. If you were to go back in your Bible today and read in Genesis chapter two, what you would see is that when Adam was given the command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve was not yet created. Eat of any tree in the garden, Adam. Help yourself, have your way, do your thing. But not that one. We clear, Adam? We're clear, God. Adam received the command. He received the authority from God. Eve received her command and her instruction from Adam. Get that order? And then Paul says this. Eve was deceived. The second reason is the difference between the sin of Adam and Eve. You know, both of them sinned. In fact, the order of sin was Eve sinned first. Yet the Bible, get this, the Bible never credits Eve with the fall of the human race. God didn't send the second Eve. He sent the second Adam. The blame is squarely placed right on Adam. Adam, it's your fault, man. It's your fault. You're responsible because you had the authority. 
You knew the difference. I gave the command, Adam, to you. Adam had the authority that Eve did not have. Therefore, he had responsibility that she did not carry. And and so in that sense, I, I would say Adam failed in the garden in a greater way than Eve did. You know, Eve was deceived. She was, she was tricked. But Adam knew what he was doing and he willingly rebelled against God. Now, I think if Eve had just had, you know, Paul's instructions about modest dress, Adam would have been able to say no. <laughs> Look, the point is this, Paul's making. Adam's sin was worse. It was worse. And at the same time, Eve's ability to, to be deceived seems to make women in a little bit more dangerous place. You know, it's been said, and I, I think it's true. You know, I, I think it's true in my life and in my marriage that generally speaking, women are way more spiritually sensitive than men. I, I mean... You know, my wife just gets a vibe on what God's doing way before I do. I'm like totally slow on the uptake. And I'm, I, bet, I bet every man here that's married would say the same thing. You know, my wife is just, a, she's, you know, you call, in the average church, you call for a prayer meeting and who shows up? The women. Hungry for the presence of God. Men are too freaking lazy. I'm serious. You can laugh, but I'm dead serious. Women show a greater desire to know God, commitment to their quiet time. In a general sense, I, I really, truly believe that. And, and almost in the story of creation and the fall and all that stuff, and in Paul's teaching, it's like that spiritual sensitivity can be used for good or it can be taken advantage of for evil. And in my mind, you don't have to agree with me, God creates the perfect standoff. There's a woman who's sensitive where you're, you're dope. And you, you can be a little bit more structured with law and doctrine and theology. And, and you work together. You let her be sensitive and you lead and you help. But our culture says what? Oh, there's no difference between the role of men. And women. Look, there is a difference and it's complementary. Of God's design. And these reasons that Paul gives that, that there's an order established that God designed and that Eve was the first to sin are not reasons that are dependent on culture. Do you see that about those reasons? They have nothing to do with culture. You know, those who might say Paul was a sexist or that Matt's a sexist or that Paul's a sexist in a sexist culture discount that the spirit of God spoke these things and that these are sacred scriptures and it's not easy, but that's what the word of God teaches. I hope you come back next week. (laughs) Verse 15. Here's a fun one. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You know, as I was studying that verse, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here this morning, the guys writing on this said, this could be the most difficult verse in the entire Bible right here to try and bust that down, right? In, in the original language, it says this, she will be saved in the childbirth. 
You know, this has that sense that even though Eve was deceived and fell and the, and the, the fall into sin, that transgression started with Eve. Women will be saved by the Messiah whom women will bring into the earth, who a woman will bring into the earth. You know, probably the idea here is that even though, you know, a woman did something bad in the garden by being deceived and falling into that transgression, a woman will also do something far greater. She'll be used by God to bear the Messiah and to bring him into the world. And so, you know, I, I would say, you know, a little bit of a summary. Don't blame women for the fall of the human race. Blame men. The Bible doesn't blame women. Instead, it honors them for bringing the Messiah into the world. You know, there's this picture here in this passage about the importance of the home as God orders and brings this structure and the role that the wife carries in my mind of discipling and training and teaching the children. She'll be saved through childbearing. You know, sometimes I get asked about, is it true our church, you know, we have male-only elders? What if a woman wants to preach? So, so, I, I don't know. It's the worst conversation ever for a pastor. So I always say this, do you want to preach? Oh, no, I don't. Then we're all good. <laughs> you know what? There's a, an order in church. There's an order in the home. There's mission that men have been given and there's mission that women have been given. And they're not less than one another. They complement one another and they're beautiful and they're of God's design. Amen? Amen. I want, to be a, I want gospel-centered thinking, a biblical worldview. It matters how we think about the unsaved. It matters how we think about the government. It matters how God's church is structured and the authority that he has established and built. Let's pray. I invite the worship guys to come on up here.